This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. Now when we give God the praise that he is worth, it means to say that he's worthy of praise. When we give God the praise that he's worth, not only does it bless his heart, but he blesses ours as well, doesn't it? Well, welcome to episode 75 of The Promise and The Purpose, our slow walk through the Gospel of Luke. So, episode 75, so five weeks ago, we passed our platinum jubilee <laughs> of this sermon series. And did you enjoy the jubilee celebrations last week? Weren't they absolutely fantastic? And my favourite story that was shared, and I've told a couple of you before, but I don't, I don't care. I'm going to say it again, because I've got the microphone, and it's a great story. Um, A story about the Queen told by one of the royal protection officers who was just being interviewed on the news and people just sharing anecdotes of of meeting the Queen. And I can't remember the chap's name. We'll just call him Dick for the purposes of the story. And uh, so Dick was a member of the Royal Protection Squad and he served with the Queen uh, for quite a while and he would follow her around. He was the policeman that was with her all the time including when she went on her holidays back to Sandringham and all these other places. And he tells a story of one day that the Queen wanted to go for a walk in the countryside at Sandringham, so he was with her. So it was just him and the Queen in their wellies in the barber jackets, just looking like a random couple out for a walk. And they bumped into a pair of American tourists who did not recognise the Queen in her civvies. And they were kind of chatting away quite happily. They bumped, as you would, the two people bumped into each other on the path. And the American said, so do you live around here? And the Queen says, no, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just down the road. (laughs) Oh, have you been coming here for for a long time? Oh, yes, says the Queen, about 40 years. Wow, said the Americans. Do you know the Queen lives around here? Do you think you've met her? And the Queen says, well, I don't know, but Dick works with her. Really, says the tourist. That's amazing. Would you take our picture? So they give their phone to the Queen and stand with Dick to get a selfie. (laughs) At which point Dick says, well, why don't we all have one together? So they take a photograph of all the four of them, you know, with with the Queen. And the the tourists kind of go off on their way. And the Queen turns to Dick and says, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they show that photograph to some other people. But I wonder if Her Majesty really does want to be a fly on the wall. Here are some fun facts about flies that I learned this week. Flies can see almost 360 degrees, which is why you can never sneak up on them with a fly swatter, because they can see you coming. And their reactions are so much faster than ours, about five times faster, which is why you can never sneak up on them with a fly swat, because... Compared to a fly, you are just living in bullet time. (laughs) Now, like butterflies, flies taste with their feet. 
So when they land on something and they walk around, actually they're having a taste. You know, oh, this tastes tasty, this is tasty, this is tasty. Um, and if they like the taste of the thing that they've landed on, then they're sick all over it. Because flies don't chew, they can only drink. So that piece of cake that they've landed on, what they basically do is that they're kind of are sick all over it, which the enzymes in their juices start to break down the cake, and then they come along and they suck it up, that juicy cakey soup. Delicious. You are never going to eat a piece of cake that a fly has landed on ever again, are you? <laughs> Why don't we turn to Scripture? Now we'll set the tone. We're in Luke chapter 11. And just before today's uh, passage, the events of today's passage, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about prayer. Okay? He taught them the Lord's Prayer. Jesus had encouraged them to expect good things from their good, good father whenever they pray. In fact, even to the point of suggesting that they should be cheeky or even impudent in the things that they ask God for. I think God is delighted when we make bold requests of him. He knows how to give good gifts to his children who ask, especially the Holy Spirit. So then the scene changes and the camera moves and it's Jesus surrounded by a crowd. He's in the middle of a time of ministry. So reading from verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon was gone, the mute man spoke and people, they marveled. But some of them said, ah, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from the heavens. But he, that's Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, every kingdom that's divided against itself is laid to waste and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how would his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be their, your judges. But, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out these demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one who is stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he will take away his armour in which he trusted and divide his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would speak to your people today. Teach us what we need to learn. Humble our hearts. Open our ears and bless us with understanding and a fresh measure of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's just dig into this passage for a few minutes. So it starts with Jesus casting out demons. I just love the way the Bible just throws in, completely ordinary, just another day in Jerusalem. Here's Jesus casting out demons, making the mute to speak again. But some people weren't as impressed as they ought to be. In verse 15, it says, but some of them says, but he's casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, he's using one demonic power to force out another demonic power. And unfortunately, 
That wasn't the last time that the devil was ever given credit for what God is up to in someone's life. And I'm sure it won't be the last. How often have people said, well, God would never use a person like you. That situation can't be of God. Now, Jesus' disciples, sorry, Jesus' accusers, Jesus' Jesus's accusers had already decided that this was not of God. These miracles were not of God. And so they brought their own alternative explanation to the table. And we need to be careful that we don't ever fall into that same trap and catch ourselves thinking, oh, that looks a bit odd, but that's a bit different. God would never do that as if we are the final word of what God would or would not do. To say, well, God would never use a person like that. Well, God would never use a person like me. You know, we diminish the grace of God when we start to prejudge and disqualify people in our minds. Or is it just me who's ever caught themselves doing that? You know, I think as a, as a society, we are fixated on the idea of an origin story. That where something or someone started defines all that they could ever do or be or become. Someone from that school would never get to go to university. Someone from that background, social class, town, school, family, could never be successful. Oh, well, someone from that family is bound to get up to no good. God would never bless something that came out of that. It sounds a bit like Nathaniel's comment. Did anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Oh, yeah, the son of God, actually. Now, and this is something, I mean, the Lord has been saying to me more than once this week, so maybe I should pay attention. God said, where something comes from, or where someone comes from, their root, if you like, does not define or control what they can grow into by the grace of God. Jesus said we should judge things by their fruit, not by their root. So it doesn't matter what the root of a thing is, the origin story does not define the final chapter. The value and success of a thing, a person, a life, a ministry, whatever it is, is defined by the fruit it produces, not the root that it grew out of. To verse 16, while others in the crowd were trying to test Jesus, and they kept asking him for a sign from the heavens. You know, so apart from the mute speaking, the sick being healed, the demons being cast out, well, maybe, you know, give us a bit more proof. Then we'll believe in you, Jesus. And then apart from all the things that you have heard, apart from all the things that you've seen, apart from all the things that you've read, and apart from all the things that you know, what more do you need before you decide to trust in Jesus? The truth is, it's not a lack of knowledge which prevents us from following Jesus. Now, researched by the C.S. Lewis Institute, interviewed people who called themselves secular atheists, people who did not believe in God. And over 63% of them declared that there was no amount of evidence that they could be given that would ever persuade them to change their beliefs. In other words, it was a position of faith <laughs> that they were taking, right? 
You know, we are saved by faith, not by evidence. All the evidence we could ever ask for has already been provided. Open your eyes and look out the window. As Paul wrote in his introduction to the letter to the church in Rome, he said, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see all of his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You know, Jesus doesn't immediately respond to this challenge asking for a sign, but he will later on, so we're going to cover that in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned. As the Huffington Post might say on a website, they asked Jesus for a sign and he won't believe what he said next. How's that for a clickbait sermon title? Anyway, back to today's passage. Verse 17. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. A divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your own sons cast them out? So you be your own judges. So who is this Beelzebul character? And why would the religious leaders be accusing Jesus of being in cahoots with him? We know names drift over time. So if we jump into our TARDIS, zoom back in time, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, back to the time of King Ahaziah. It's easy for you to say. King Ahaziah, the time of the prophet Elijah, about 850 years before the birth of Jesus. Ahaziah is king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and he gets out of bed one morning on the wrong side. Quite literally, he falls through the terrace all the way down to the ground floor and is so badly injured that he fears for his life. So he inquires of his messengers in the court to travel to Philistine, the neighbouring country, and inquire of Beelzebub whether or not he would live or die. So Beelzebub is translated as the Lord of the Flies. That's what that name translates as. And he was a local deity that was translated in the region of Ekron in Philistine. And he was supposed to be a god or a deity who could heal people. Okay? Because strangely enough, flies were actually associated in the Middle East with healing and health. Okay? So the Lord of the Flies was a god that would heal you, apparently. So Ahaziah's messengers are on the road to travel to Philistine and they encounter the prophet Elijah on the road who, travel, who challenges him and says, is there no God in all of Israel that you have to go off to a foreign land and inquire after a foreign God in Ekron? So back in our TARDIS, travel back to the region around Jerusalem. It's 30 AD. So the story of Ahaziah and Elijah is well known to all the Jews who are speaking to Jesus. And although the name has drifted over 900 years, Beelzebul, Beelzebul, right, is recognised It's this foreign god, this demonic deity, this power, this principality that has the ability to heal. Okay? Which is why they're saying, ah, oh, Jesus, you're casting out those demons with the power of this foreign deity we recognise as being a healing deity. And actually some scholars would suggest that this Beelzebub character developed over time and grew into what the Greeks call Zeus and what the Romans call Jupiter. He was the leader of the pantheon of the gods. So actually the accusation that's coming against Jesus is just not, not just that he's in league with a foreign god, but he's a servant of the leader of the whole of the opposition against Yahweh in heaven. 
So when it comes to insulting the Son of God, I don't think it gets any worse than suggesting him that he's in league with the principal opposition leader in the war between heaven and hell. So how does Jesus respond to his accusation? He says, well, Jesus says, but I, it's Jesus speaking, I'm attacking Satan and all of his works, just like your Jewish exorcists do too. So if you're saying that demons can only be cast out with the power of another more powerful demon, how do your exorcists do the same job, right? Healing only comes from heaven is what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on in verse 20, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I'm casting out these demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, and this is the message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is breaking through. You get to see it in action when miracles happen. It is the, by the power of the finger of God that does this. Interesting phrase, isn't it? The finger of God. Not the strong arm of the Lord. Not the powerful thighs of Jesus. But the finger. The weakest of all of the limbs. It's the finger of God that triumphs over Satan. God's weakest part has victory over the powers of hell. It is the finger of God that's able to defeat the Lord of the flies. And the Jews in the audience would recognize that phrase because when the Egyptian magicians were talking to Pharaoh and the plague of the gnats and the plague of the flies were coming over all of Egypt, when Moses was coming to see Pharaoh, what did the Egyptian magician say? He says, this is done by the power of the finger of God, talking about Yahweh. So who is really Lord of all the earth, including being Lord over the gnats and Lord over the flies? It is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Jesus goes on, verse 21, he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, all his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his army in which he trusted and he divides his spoils. So this metaphor, Jesus, uh, Satan is the strong man in this metaphor that Jesus is using. And Satan is guarding his palace, which is his dominion, his seat of power upon the earth. And then along comes one who is stronger, stronger with his finger. It's Jesus. He's the one who attacks him and overcomes Satan, takes away his armor, and divides his spoils. You know, Satan had built this power base upon the earth, his false religions, his philosophies, his empty deceits, and along comes Jesus, and ultimately through the power of the cross, as it says in two, uh, Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, Satan has been left weakened, because his armour has been taken by Jesus. That's what it says. Yeah. And yet to us, we've been given God's own armour. I'm sure your mind has jumped to that passage in Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. I never noticed it before, but one of the reasons why we can stand up to the devil when we put on the armour of God is because the devil has been left vulnerable because Jesus has stolen the devil's own armour. We're in God's armour and the devil is naked. So Jesus concludes with this stark warning. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You know, when it comes to the war between heaven and hell, there are no 
Switzerland. There is no middle ground. You are either team Jesus or you are team Satan. There is no third way. There is no audience watching from the sidelines to see how this all plays out. The question is always, whose side are you on? Now, Augustine pondered the implications of this challenge, and he came up with this great metaphor. He declared, we are all donkeys, and we have a rider upon our back. It is either Jesus or the devil. It's one or the other. Who are you going to pick? It's one camp or the other. Paul describes it like this in in Colossians again, in chapter 1. He says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, everyone starts in this domain of darkness because even though he is naked and ultimately defeated, at this point in history, Satan is still the ruler of this world, the domain of darkness. And when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are transferred from that kingdom into the light of the kingdom of Jesus. Our citizenship changes. Our address doesn't, but our passport does. And there's no third option. If you've not chosen Jesus, you are therefore by definition still in that kingdom of darkness. It's as simple as that. Moses kind of prophetically puts it this way back in Deuteronomy 30. He says, I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses against you today. I've set before you life and death, a way of blessings and curses. Therefore, choose life that your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. So today, whenever today might happen to be, whether it is the 12th of June, 2022, or at some point in the future, because you're watching this online or listening to a podcast, today is the day when you can choose life, to choose to work with Jesus and not against him. And if you're a believer today, consider just this past week, are there things that God has brought to mind that are pointing at times when actually you've behaved in a way that was scattering problems rather than gathering people towards God and showing them his love in practical ways? If you think perhaps that today's the day you need to respond to that call of Jesus, to accept his invitation into the kingdom of light. Now is the time that you can do that. I'm going to pray. And if you want to make these words your own, just say amen at the end. That just means I agree. Let's all pray together. Lord Jesus, I want you to be in control of my life, of every area of my life. I submit it all to your lordship. I want to be a citizen of your kingdom. I declare that you are my Lord, that God raised you from the dead. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, the counsellor who will guide me on the right path every day. Amen.